So here we are at the end of the third day and this is really, we're really getting into the heart of the retreat now. I find it quite, kind of quite, can't quite believe that we've been doing this for three full days. Anyway. And tonight I want to talk about something um, that's been implicitly mentioned a lot over the course of this time together and also explicitly named a few times and which like uh, Meta is deeply bound up with, um, deeply connected, almost inseparable from um, the practice, the quality of mindfulness. And that's uh, wisdom. And I, I sort of feel slightly shy talking about this in the presence particularly of John, who's a, uh, quite <laughs> expert on, in my eyes, an expert on philosophy and so forth. So this is, um, you know, it, it's impossible anyway in, a, in an evening's talk to give a comprehensive view of wisdom. So these are just really some personal reflections on things that I hope some of which will be useful to, to you. So wisdom uh, translates a Pali word, panya, and I'm going to try not to do too much Pali this evening, but panya is a kind of important, uh, widely found word, almost as widely found as, as dukkha and sati, which are the two words we've principally had so far, oh, and metta. And this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi has to say about the word panya, so Bhikkhu Bodhi, for those of you who don't know, is maybe the leading contemporary translator of the early Buddhist texts into English. He's a, an American monk. Um, he says the Pali word panya, which is P-A-N-N-A with two squiggles over the ends, is derived from the verbal root nya, which is J-N-A nya in Sanskrit, which means to know and preceded by the prefix pa, which merely gives the root meaning a more dynamic nuance. So panya means knowing or understanding, not as a possession, but as an action. The act of knowing, the act of understanding, or the act of discerning. And actually, we can think about mindfulness in the same way. Sometimes, you know, it's not really a, a thing, is it? It's an activity. So sometimes it would maybe be better to call it awarenessing or something like that. So this panya wisdom has a, has a dynamic quality to it. And also there is already mentioned the two other translations which are also quite often used for this word panya of understanding or discernment. And just a little aside, this root nya is... Uh, the same um, root as in the, the Greek word that's come into English, gnosis, or also indirectly in our word ignorance, not knowing. And this Greek word gnosis, it, it came up in a very famous setting in ancient Greece at the Delphic Oracle, which was the most, um, the most famous oracle that people would go and consult about their problems in the ancient Greek world, including kings and rulers. And you went to visit this oracle, this priestess in her cave at Delphi. But as you entered the cave or the temple, there was this inscription that said, Gnothi Sauton, 
which is, actually means know thyself. And I'm just mentioning this because it's kind of relevant to you know, what I'll be speaking about later, that uh, we can go seeking wise answers from sources outside of us, but actually there's something that's even more profoundly important, valuable and informative about knowing ourselves. So panya is often used almost in the same breath as mindfulness. So I don't know, some of you know uh, Bhante Bodhidharma, the monk who sometimes teaches here of sat retreats with him, who has a, a center in Hertfordshire, which is called satipanya. This is a word that's commonly found, this fusion of sati mindfulness and panya wisdom. In the monastic community that I used to live in, the, the, the traditional way of really speaking highly of a monk or a nun or a practitioner is to say that they are a person of mindfulness and wisdom. These two qualities really go together. And they're of particular, or they are of great value in community. Wisdom is great, of great value in community and society. So in a passage I'm going to refer to later, the Buddha said that when a person's wisdom is well developed, they're valued and respected by others. And these qualities lead to affection, esteem, concord, and unity. So all things that we badly need in this world of ours. But wisdom, especially in the, in the sort of uh, Western sense of philosophy, has lots of tricky connotations. And so that's why sometimes in some contexts, actually with, um, understanding or discernment can be more helpful. But actually, I want to linger a bit with the English word wisdom and just reflect on what it means to us in ordinary speech. So I was thinking that actually, you know, wisdom is a concept that we encounter very early in our lives often, don't we? Through things like fairy tales and myths, you know. When we, we read a story about the wise old king or the, the wise old woman or the, the wise fairy godmother, it's like we kind of know what it means on some level. We have a, we have a feel that this, this, this is meaningful to us. And I would like to suggest that this sense of wisdom is always imbued with, um, or it's always, there's a, always a, um, a sense of compassion contained with it, isn't it? We don't, we never really, we never, uh, if something is unkind, it's never wise. So, so wisdom is always compassionate, it's also ethical in nature. And there's also a sense of maturity about it. So we usually associate it with age in some way, although age really, you know, we get some very wise young people and some very unwise old people. <laughs> so actually in the, in the um, I think in the dot B course that's taught in schools, the, the mindfulness in schools course, I think in the introductory session, they often use a clip from Kung Fu Panda, don't they? Where with um, Ugwe, the I don't know if he's a tortoise or a turtle, but he's the great sage in there, where he has this encounter with uh, Po and uh, is uh, and talks about just this th very thing that uh, John was talking about the other day about living in the past and the future, and he says, you know, today is a gift, and that's why it's called the present. 
And, uh, and this is wisdom dispensed by this, I think he's supposed to be a thousand years old tortoise. Yeah. And this is something that you know, a lot of us can relate to quite readily. And then there's, an, you know, when we think of archetypes of wise beings, so the Buddha is just one example. And as we've said, the Buddha actually, as this term means, one who's awake. And epithets that are often used for him are the greatly compassionate one, or one who's perfect in conduct and understanding. So not just the understanding, but the conduct. And then I think of modern people, who will be contemporary people who I, I, I associate with the quality of wisdom. Somebody like the Dalai Lama, or um, in, in, in my lineage, a, a very famous Thai monk, Ajahn Chah, who was considered to be very wise. Or we have maybe uh, figures further back in history. And they have a very interesting quality sometimes, these beings. They're not... It's not a cleverness, is it, this quality of wisdom? It, there's actually often a, 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 almost a simplicity and a playfulness to these, these people that we find wise. And I was listening to a, a talk by um, a French-Canadian teacher friend on Dharma Seed recently where he was just kind of trying to, trying to feel his way around, well, what, what is it that's special about some of these beings? And... Uh, of course, in French, you can do all sorts of things. So he was talking about qualities like beauté de l'esprit and, and things, or you know, saying how there's a sort, of, uh, a sort of pliability. These people aren't rigid, they're flexible. But at the same time, it's, not, it's nothing lightweight about it. You know, they actually inspire a lot of respect. And I'm sure if you, you, know, if you did something that was really off, there'd actually be people who could put, put a bit of fear into you as well. Or you can think about people that you've personally known who you've considered wise or you feel are wise. You know, what are, what are the, what's the, what's the flavour of their qualities? Or what do, you, what do you look for in a therapist or a teacher? Or, you know, if, if I'm looking for a, for a therapist, I don't just look for a bunch of letters after somebody's name or qualifications, do I? It's like you want to kind of find out, does this, does this person have a, a, a feeling of wisdom about them? Yeah. So I think this, this, this word wisdom, although it's complicated, is, is worth lingering with for its nuances. And I also want to suggest that we all have it in some measure. Yeah. We have access to it in some measure. So the Buddha spoke in terms of people having much or little dust in their eyes. The dust is what obscures the wisdom, but actually underneath we all have this capacity for wisdom. And that's one of the reasons that I want to talk about it, is to really um, get us awake to that and help us to nurture that in ourselves. And in some ways, the beginning of wisdom is common sense. So I just was, um, last term, I taught a um, mind, uh, MBCT for Life course to a group of teachers in a secondary school who are going to be involved in this trial for, um, across the country for teaching mindfulness in secondary schools. And I had, just before I came here, I had a top-up session with them after the summer holidays. And one of them was sharing about how 
just how much difference her practice of mindfulness had made to her over the summer. And she was saying, wow, isn't this amazing? And she said, and it's all common sense, you know? But to actually have access, full access to our common sense is not that common, is it, all the time, you know? <laughs> the difficulty really is in remembering common sense, and we least remember it often when we most need it. You know, people who retain their access to common sense under pressure can often be quite rare. So we, we, start, we start out early in life with a felt sense of what wisdom is, but then it kind of drops out of the conversation. And I think this is partly because it's so difficult to define. You know, so it gets, up, gets mixed up with the, the meaning of... of um, having particular views or opinions. And it also, I think, it, it requires us to come into a conscious relationship with big existential questions, and then that gets very tricky. So one of the, one of the areas of disagreement amongst contemporary Buddhists, for example, is whether a wise person should believe in rebirth or not believe in rebirth. And this is a very difficult, you know, one to demonstrate or prove. And that's also been a debate and a question since the time of the Buddha. But I think one way that we discern wisdom in people is not about, not just through what they believe, but how they hold those beliefs, what they do with those beliefs, and how they relate when there are areas of disagreement, you know. How do we handle disagreement? How do we um, hold diversity of views and opinions? You know, this, is, this is one area in which wisdom can manifest and be, be demonstrated. So the Buddha had many controversies that were thrust at him, but he always engaged in, in argument and discussion in a way that was respectful and polite. So if we're going to do justice to our mindfulness practice, I think wisdom would, it would benefit us to bring wisdom back into the conversation. And one thing that we've, you know, we've said in different ways, and I think we've probably even used this particular uh, sentence over these last few days, is that awareness alone is not enough. It's the title of a very good little Dharma book by a Burmese teacher who's very popular with Western students at the moment. Yeah, so I'm going to I'll come around to this awareness alone. Uh, being, awareness alone is not enough again in a moment. But bringing wisdom back into the conversation, I, I was just flicking through the, uh, through the handbook for this my MBCT for Life course to see, well, is wisdom mentioned at all as a word and where does it crop up? And there are quite uh, two or three times there's this sense of, well, this practice is enabling us to find a wise and, and kind, wiser and kinder response to, to things. Uh, but the word wisdom doesn't really get uh, elaborated or discussed. And I was thinking also how the word compassion, it now seems to have found its way back into the public discourse. So you even get people like Theresa May, you know, mentioning compassion. 
I wonder if one day wisdom will kind of re-enter, re-enter the discussion. I don't know. So awareness alone is not enough. Christina said beautifully last night, this is not supposed to be a path to staying the same, is it? One of the, one of the epithets of the Buddha's teaching is that it's onward leading. This practice is meant to lead us, lead us somewhere. So in the goals of mindfulness, again, in the same handbook, I was seeing, okay, because I, I, I'm going on I'm talking about this handbook because I think it, it, this is just the student handbook, but it's a very recent one from the Oxford Mindfulness Centre uh, written by uh, one of the writers is Chris Cullen, who I feel is a very good mindfulness teacher and very, um, he's very good at languaging things. And anyway, the... So the goals of mindfulness that are identified are a fuller presence and appreciation of life and that we're less likely to be ruled by our unhelpful habits and that also that we have more choice and more freedom over how to respond to whatever's arising. So we've also said it's not about just learning to be with things but it's also about learning from things. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we, when we've got this choice opening up, how do we know how to respond? You know, is there something, question that's been coming up, is there something more to this than just accepting what's happening? How do we get from acceptance as just a foundational attitude for our mindfulness practice to a sense of like radical acceptance? If you're familiar, maybe some of you are, uh, like Tara Brack or have read some of her work she has this book Radical Acceptance acceptance that's actually something that's really radically transformative in our lives well somebody yesterday in the group was talking about gratitude and kind of what is, what is beyond gratitude there's also, there's, also there's, there's gratitude and then there's kind of gratefulness in the sense if you're some of you might know the Benedictine monk uh, David Steindl Rast has a website, www.gratefulness.org. He's a wonderful monk in his 90s, and he's one of, these, one of the first Buddhist, um, Benedictine or Christian monks to really also um, get very interested in the practice of Buddhist meditation. And his, his uh, teaching or approach is around gratefulness. And he says that ultimately... There's a possibility of gratefulness in every single situation, even if the situation is very, really difficult or undesirable. What, what the present moment offers us is the opportunity to respond. And this is, this is where gratefulness really lies, in recognizing that we have an opportunity to respond. But how do we, how do we get to that kind of relationship to life between just beginning to cultivate an attitude of acceptance to arriving at what in traditional Buddhist speak is called the unshakable deliverance of the heart but still being touched and touching the experience of life isn't an easy one and this is why wisdom is so precious and wisdom is needed. So there are two images for wisdom that I want to share that come from the, 
the early texts. And this is the first one is of wisdom as a light. And this is the Buddha speaking to, to his monks. He says, There are, O monks, these four lights. What four? The light of the moon, the light of the sun, the light of, the, the light of fire, and the light of wisdom. Of these four lights, the light of wisdom is supreme. And then in another very different image, he compares it to a knife. And he uses the image of a, a butcher. It's quite a graphic image of the butcher, who, a very skilled butcher, who um, has the carcass of a cow and is able to completely separate the skin of the, the hide of the cow from the rest of the carcass and then put it back together again without damaging anything else. And he says, in that case, is the carcass and the skin still joined together? And the people he's speaking to say, of course not. And this is a sense of um, wisdom as a knife that can disentangle the tangle that Christina was speaking about last night. You know, it has that ability to cut through the tangle in such a way, eventually, that the tangle doesn't get re-entangled. You don't put the, the cow and the skin back together again. So the, that sharp knife image implies the quality of discernment. And we've already met that, actually, in the, in the sense of wisdom and um, mindfulness as being the, gate, the wise gatekeeper, haven't we, the other evening. Um, but the, the, one of the drawbacks of just sticking with the translation of Panya's discernment is that it can, it can feel a little bit conceptual. So wisdom is not just a conceptual way of knowing. So I just remembered that in the, the Bangor um, poetry book that they have, I don't know, this is quite an ancient one, but I imagine that this poem is still knocking around. There's a poem from Rumi about two kinds of intelligence. So, and I just thought I'd share this. And so he says, there are two kinds of intelligence, one acquired as a child, in, one acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as from the new sciences. With such intelligence you rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. You stroll with this intelligence in and out of the fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets. There's another kind of tablet, one already completed and preserved inside you, a spring overflowing its spring box, a freshness in the center of the chest. This other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It's fluid, and it doesn't move from outside to inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. The second knowing is a fountainhead from within you, moving out. So I, I like that poem in that it, you know, it points us away from an over-prioritizing of conceptual learning and conceptual knowledge. And I think, you know, there are many ways of knowing 
that have got lost and discredited uh, over the centuries and particularly through this culture. But it's also, this is not really a, um, this, this doesn't really map entirely onto uh, the, the understanding of wisdom that I'm talking about from the, the Buddhist text because it's not one that abandons that kind of knowing either. So, but this is just to point out that although it's not a purely conceptual knowing, it's also not a kind of crazy wisdom or just a bare intuition. So a question that often comes up for practitioners is like, you know, when should I, how do I know when to trust my intuition? We all have, oh, we all have this question, probably not just, you know, meditation practitioners. And really your intuition is going to be as good as your wisdom. Um, if we, for example, if we're somebody who doesn't have a very good kind of foundation of ethics, then our intuition might lead us into some tricky places. If we're a person who has a deeply embedded sense of ethics, then it's less likely that our, our intuition is going to lead us to do something harmful or unskillful. And actually, the Buddha's advice, you know, even if you do think, oh, I'm going to follow my intuition, the Buddha's advice was always to reflect before, after, and whilst doing anything or saying anything. You know, is this harmful in some way to myself or to another or to both of us? And to have that be the, the litmus test of when you follow an impulse or not. Okay, but so I'm dancing around this subject of wisdom. I'm still not saying what it is. <laughs> and I might still not have said what it is by the end of the talk, but hopefully we'll have a, you know, you'll have a few more tools to go, to go with. So luckily for us, uh, even wisdom is governed by laws of cause and effect. So there are conditions for the development of wisdom. And this is, things are always spelled out very kind of thoroughly. So these are conditions for obtaining wisdom when it has not been obtained and for bringing about the increase and maturation and development of the wisdom that has already been obtained. So I'm going to give two kind of um, schemes for doing this. The first is this kind of twofold map of how wisdom develops. And then there's a, another map that I want to share. But one way in which we develop wisdom is said to be through two things, the voice of another and our own wise attention. Because the voice of another, because certain facts of life kind of need bringing to our attention. We were discussing insight in my sitting group in Oxford last week, and one um, friend at the sitting group, she, she said that she'd noticed that her, her insights are genu generally preceded by outsights, in that it's usually something she hears from some, someone else or something she observes outside of her that... Uh, 
knocks her mind out of its habitual stance towards something and actually um, starts the process of the mind seeing it in a fresh way. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. Her insights, uh, if, if we're just locked internally in a habitual way of perceiving things, insights don't come. And often it's really helpful that something from outside triggers a new way of seeing. So there's the classic legend of the Buddha who was supposedly raised in a very privileged sort of setting and that at a certain point he went outside from there and he really noticed for the first time um, a, a sick person, an old person, and a dead person. And this really shocked him out of his existential complacency. It's like he, he was really so disturbed by these reminders of human vulnerability that this is what set him forth on his quest for wisdom. Yeah. And we need reminding of these things over and over. So I don't know about you, but I found it, I always find it somehow... Um, comforting to hear talks like Christina's last night, just really naming the difficulties, the vulnerabilities of our human condition. I remember the first time I heard a teacher talking about those things, that it just felt like a tremendous relief to hear somebody naming things how they actually are. Things that just as in the Buddha's, you know, childhood palace, you know, as, as parents often we do and in, inevitably spend a lot of time trying to protect our children from, from suffering. Also, but, and then society in a kind of perpetuation of, the, of childhood, if you like, or childishness, kind of conspires to also keep these things hidden from us. No. And that, but actually, when we hear somebody naming it how it is, generally, it's often, um, it's often actually quite comforting. And we need to be reminded over and over again you know, that impermanence is not a mistake. This is how it is. Things change, not just the things that we, you know, that we don't mind changing. It all changes. That our vulnerability or our struggles are also not a personal mistake. This is what life is like. This is how it is. And also the fact that we, we can't find an unchanging, unassailable sense of self that we can get perfectly in control of our lives, of our relationships, of our experiences. This too is not a mistake. It's not that there's something that's gone wrong that's not meant to be happening, that I've done wrong. You know. This is how it is. How could it be otherwise? We also need somebody to point out to us, to show us that it's the reactions of clinging and craving and aversion and our confusion that keeps us entangled in the tangle. And we can hear this over and over again. You know, many of us have been doing this practice for years and decades and we kind of come back to hear it again because we know how helpful that is because the habit our habit is to actually perceive the world in a distorted way of actually not seeing these things clearly and of thinking that the route to peace and freedom is 
me getting what I want. Yeah. So I had a, I was on a retreat earlier this year, and I sort of I had this kind of um, just saw this quite clearly at one point, and I was there was uh, something was happen, happening that I there was something that I really really wanted to the extent that it was painful, and I wasn't sure whether it was going to happen or I was going to get it, and. I was doing walking meditation and I was just with this incredibly painful sense of longing and wanting. And then I would notice from time to time that just, you know, the movement of the mind, that that sense of longing and wanting wasn't there. And that actually the mind was quite peaceful, quite happy doing its walking, contentedly feeling my feet. And then somehow the mind would like want to recreate the whole story. It just had to bring up that sense of, of longing and wanting again. Because that belief that actually the route to peace is not enjoying the peace that actually I was experiencing in that moment, but because if I just brought back that sense of craving, I might get the thing I want. And it would do this, it just kept happening over and over again. And it, it would it just... It, it's so difficult to break that habit. You know, it takes it takes practice and a lot of careful attention. So this is why the, the arising of wisdoms comes with the voice of another and with our own wise or appropriate attention. I'm saying wise or appropriate because again, it's one of these things that's difficult to translate. And actually, the word in Pali is yonisto, which is yoni is your womb. It's connected with. It's like the kind of um, you know really attending to it from deep down, deeply, in your gut, in your belly. And the Buddhist tradition also gives a very clear statement about what constitutes wise and unwise attention or appropriate and inappropriate attention. So inappropriate attention is this trying to sort out myself project all the time, this anxious conceptual proliferation about am I okay? Am I doing this okay? You know, am I giving a good enough talk? Are they going to think it's a good enough talk? Am I a good enough teacher? And wise attention is just knowing what's happening right now. So, body sitting here, talking, little bit of stimulation from talking in, a, in, in front of a group of people, actually quite enjoying, feeling a sense of connecting, wanting to offer something, and so on. But, you know, so, losing your notes. <laughs> yeah, so this wise and appropriate attention is precisely what we're cultivating here in our practice together. This question that we keep coming back to, what's happening right now, right here in this fathom-long body? How is this phenomenon of entanglement manifesting right now? So the desire to be well thought of, for example. What's that doing to my experience? And where, you know, where can I put down, where can I disentangle from the tangle? Or where is my attention right now? Where is it and where would it be helpful to place it? Perhaps there's somewhere more helpful to place it than where I am placing it. 
And what kind of relationship am I in to my experience right now? Is it a helpful one or is it an unhelpful one? And all this is a very experiential form of learning, isn't it? It's coming back to the Delphic Oracle and the priestess in the cave. It said, know thyself. And really to understand all the subtle ramifications of all this needs a lot of dedicated practice. It needs us to also to develop a real um, steadiness of mind, an ability to stay steady and to keep watching and to keep learning, even in the face of uncomfortable experience. Yeah, unpleasant Vedana, not just of the body, but of the mind, of the emotions, and so forth. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to the other list of uh, causes and conditions for the development of wisdom. And it's, it's all, um, in some ways, it's all there in this aspect of the voice of another and wise attention. But there's some pieces in this other list that I find quite interesting and useful to uh, reflect on. So this is, uh, I, I said before about the the mature, the the um, obtaining of unobta- wisdom yet unobtained, and the maturing and developing of the wisdom that has already been obtained. So these are eight things that the Buddha suggested, and this was a this was a teaching given to monks. So I'm I'm kind of slightly um, tweaking it to make it uh, more applicable um, and meaningful to us. So the first one is about living in dependence on a teacher or finding a teacher or teachers. And he says that when you find a teacher, you live with them with a relationship of respect and goodwill and also a keen sense of shame and moral dread. Now, that sounds a little bit too intense, but there is something about the willingness to receive feedback, you know, that we all benefit from if we wish to grow and learn, don't we? And the sense of goodwill is interesting, and this needs to be mutual. Like, we we need a a sense of... um, trust and um, warmth and mutual uh, respect and affection. We benefit most from those kinds of learning relationships. And also that our teachers need to be trustworthy. This is something when we're looking for an appropriate teacher, one of the things to do is to examine you know, observe their conduct in general. Do they seem to be a trustworthy person? And how important it is for us as teachers to be trustworthy people. And this actually um, brings me to something which is actually the topic of a whole other talk, but I just want to mention it here. This quality of uh, trust and respect actually is related to the quality of faith, which is... In, in one presentation is actually spoken of as the counterbalance to wisdom. So mindfulness is one of five, five spiritual qualities, um, the others being wisdom and faith, which need to be in balance with one another, and energy 
and calm or concentration. And these are all things that we're playing with, developing, using here. And we don't need to worry about remembering this list and so on, but just that actually um, faith is important as a counterbalance to wisdom. And if you think about it, you know, when pe we ask people to start taking up practice to join courses or when you start the meditation the practice of meditation you actually need a certain amount of faith to get going to be willing to trust a process when you don't really know where it's leading we're, we're constantly asking people to do that this is a quality this is a quality of strength in us the ability to trust what we don't yet know and so faith, I think, faith or trust, if you like, enables us to be open to what we don't yet know and also open towards what's actually unknowable. So there's a book by an um, a American Tibetan nun teacher called Pema Chodron called Comfortable with Uncertainty. And I just really like that, that sense of, wow, what's it like to be comfortable with uncertainty? Actually, this is a huge... Um, a, you know, a huge realization or accomplishment, if you like, in our in practice. And of course, there's, we're surrounded by uncertainty, aren't we? We don't know what the future's going. We don't know what our next meditation is going to be like. Can I be in a place of comfort with uncertainty? Okay. So, finding a trustworthy teacher, attitude of respect and goodwill. Okay. The second thing is once you've found your teacher. And, you know, in the, in the Buddha's day and in many traditional societies, we, the people had more of a, an apprenticeship relationship with a teacher, and you might live very in close dependence on a single teacher. That's not kind of how it works in our society. But still, you find some way of accessing, sourcing teaching. Okay. So the second condition is, once you've found the teacher, to ask questions so about not being too shy to ask questions about what you don't already know. Last week, I found myself having supper with my sister and my nieces who were 12 and 14, and they were just at the end of a school day. And my 12-year-old niece was talking about being, being in a class, I think it was a science class or something that day, and they got all the way through to the end of the class. And the teacher said, does anyone not understand what I've been talking about? And my niece, oh, I really hadn't understood it, and uh, but she was also a bit shy to be so. Yeah, she yeah, she put up, she put up her hands, and and then slowly, slowly, these other little hands started to creep up. But if she hadn't put up her hand, nobody nobody would have asked. And so we had this whole discussion about what, you know, and of course my sister and my other niece said, well, why didn't you ask sooner if you got, to, you know, you got right to the end of the lesson, you didn't understand, and you only then did you fess up and say, I haven't understood. And then the older niece, who's, who's just started her, she's in her first year of GCSEs, and she's got, so she's got something from the school about how you get assessed as how you're doing as a student. And one of the things that you get marks for is asking questions, you know. So she's saying, you know, this is, this is what you're supposed to do. This is a sign of being a good student. And it's, it's just like this. So you just notice, I mean, we're, we're all slightly different in this, in this regard. You know, some of us are the type, which I was a bit at school. I think I was quite obnoxious. But there are a lot of us. And, and I also quite often have done the other thing as well, as like not ask because I, I'm, I don't want my ignorance to be revealed or 
feeling stupid. So just, you know, notice if you're the kind of person who's very reluctant to ask a question or so on. Where is, where is the reluctance coming from? Sometimes it's helpful to be a bit courageous in that regard. Are you someone who always sits at the back hoping that you won't be noticed? Had this naughty idea of moving around the hall as a teacher the other day. Um, just so that if you think you, you're sitting at the back, you suddenly find yourself at the front and vice versa. I mean, I know we have many reasons for sitting at the back, so really please don't feel that I'm making assumptions about why you might be sitting at the back. <laughs> So, not being shy to ask questions. Okay. And then the third one is once you've, you've asked questions, heard a teaching, is suggest dwelling withdrawn with, in body and withdrawn in mind. What does withdrawn mean? It's actually talking about seclusion. And this is actually what we're doing on retreat. Seclusion being actually beginning the process of unentangling yourself, disentangling yourself just in the most basic and practical way. If we want to really disentangle the tangle, to have the kind of uh, level of calm and peace where we can see with more clarity, we do need to do something about disengaging from all the things that pull us outwards into habitual um, modes of behavior and distraction. So you're already, you're already doing this by making the choice to come on retreat, you know, to simplify your life, to put down other things so that you can actually spend a bit of time getting to know yourself better. So this is what's meant by you know, dwelling withdrawn in body and mind. It doesn't mean becoming a withdrawn person. It's actually realizing and acting on the understanding that it's, it's actually helpful to... to do things to disentangle ourselves. And this is also true of like carving out time for stopping and practice regularly when you're not on retreat. You know, how different do we feel, even if we think, well, I didn't accomplish anything in that meditation. If we stop for 15 minutes every day and switch off our phones or you know, actually just disengage from activity, it really has a profound effect on our life. So, and then the fourth one is ethical conduct. So, it was talking about the five precepts, these commitments to harmlessness, or Thich Nhat Hanh even calls them mindfulness trainings. So, different um, ways of refraining from causing harm through our body, through our speech, and uh, through our activities. And what's the benefit of that? is clearly it gives us a freedom from avoidable levels of hassles, doesn't it? You know, lots of hassles in our lives are unavoidable, but there are hassles that we can just create for ourselves by our own unskillful behavior. It will give us more harmonious relationships. And most importantly, it gives us freedom from remorse and anxiety. So the mind actually is able to settle again and see with more clarity. So we're not remorseful about what we've done and we're not anxious about the consequences of it in future. And this actually, you can even turn this into a positive thing. So what is often spoken about is the bliss of blamelessness. 
actually reflecting on your own good conduct or say your own generosity or the or an act of kindness of you uh, that you've done it's not self-inflating it actually brings a sense of uplift of happiness of contentment to the heart and when the mind is happy it settles more easily and it sees things more clearly so finding a teacher asking questions dwelling secluded with your in your body and mind ethical conduct and then the fifth one is studying and remembering uh, teachings reflecting on them and then contemplating them experientially so these are sometimes known as three types of wisdom the wisdom that's received from the outside the wisdom that's arrived at through our own reflection and then the wisdom that's actually access through direct experience and this is again what we're doing here we're we're hearing ideas or we're bringing the ideas that we already are familiar with we we take time to reflect on them and we actually see okay well can i you know what how do i feel this how do i know this in my own experience number six wise energy and effort so we have to apply some effort to this whole process it's not going to do it on its own but one of the things that we learn in this is about how to balance our degree of effort Uh, wise effort is is not just the more effort the better we actually have to learn how to balance it the seventh one so nearly at the end is also really interesting to me. It was about, so this is again in, in the original teaching, it's talking to a group of monks, and it says about, you should either talk about practice or you should not shun silence. And I would translate this for us into avoiding idle gossip or you know, useless kind of conversation or un, unskillful speech, like, gossip, like backbiting, for example. What, what kind of conversation, engagement, takes you backwards? Just as I think John said when he was talking about the, the, the precept around consuming drugs or alcohol or that are, you know, to intoxicate the mind, you know, we invest all this energy in trying to cultivate the ability to stay present to be clear to see clearly and then we don't want to um, fill the mind or the body with something that's actually going to take us in the opposite direction and it's the same with certain kinds of conversation and gossip that we engage in or we ingest and you could actually extend this to include you know what do we what do we imbibe from the media how much time do we spend on the internet? What do, we, what do we take in from there? Is it really feeding the wisdom faculty in the mind or is it feeding, again, this distorted perception and delusion, this sense that, oh, if I just could go on holiday to this place or get this new pair of boots or whatever you're into, you know, this would just do it for me or the sense of pressure that we feel to look a certain way or be a certain way or achieve certain things or to have done certain things or that sense of the fear of missing out that many of us suffer from 
So what would be your um, manifestation of avoiding idle gossip? Okay. And then the eighth condition is uh, really a deepening of the contemplation of things as they actually are. So the text talks about contemplating um, arising and passing away of this being I call me and the constituents of this being I call me. And this is something quite complicated and I think it's an area that John is going to go into in a later talk. But really, in a nutshell, it's talking about understanding through this process of contemplative observation of really um, being with, investigating, being curious about our moment-to-moment experience, understanding the composite conditions changing nature of our experience and the patterns of reactivity and understanding how we can unstick from them. So coming back to that MBCT for Life handbook for students, there's a great word which I think might be Chris's, which is de-blobbing. Can we de-blob our experience, disentangle ourselves from stuckness in our experience? So I'll leave, maybe leave John to do a talk on de-blobbing. <laughs> or Christine, I'm sure we'll be talking in many ways about de-blobbing as we continue with the retreat. So those are eight conditions for the arising of wisdom. If you, once you've once you've mastered all those eight conditions, then maybe you can, you can give a talk on what wisdom is. <laughs> so I hope that this given you some, you know, some feeling and some ideas for uh, this quality that we really, um, is really there all the time, walking hand in hand with our mindfulness practice. And you can also reflect through the course of the retreat, well, how is, how is my wisdom being developed on this retreat and in your life and in your practice? And we can often, like we were saying yesterday, we often focus on the things that are wrong that we don't have. And you can think about, you could think, spend all this time thinking about all the wisdom that I don't have. You know, the ways that I don't understand things, the ways I don't see clearly. But how about also appreciating the wisdom that is there? Appreciating and growing the wisdom that's already already present. And actually letting that be a source of gladness and enjoy so that you feel encouraged and empowered in your practice. So, I think that's, that's all I have to say for this evening. But let's just sit quietly for a few moments and let the words go back into silence. Trusting that you will absorb what's helpful to absorb and the rest can just go the way of impermanence. <laughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.